Take a copy of the scriptures. Find the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews 10 is our passage this morning. While you find Hebrews 10, I want to share with you something that I have been thinking about this last week. There's a pastor in Ohio that I listen to regularly. I download his podcasts and I listen to his sermons uh, throughout the week. This last week, he paused posting sermons. And in place of that, he posted a series of lectures that he delivered at his church as he hosted a pastor's conference. So he had a group of pastors there at his church. He was teaching them about expository preaching. And the lectures were very, very helpful for a guy like me who tries to do that uh, in his vocational ministry. But one of the comments he made in the course of one of the lectures has stuck with me, and I've thought about it. He made the observation as a pastor that when he visits other churches, and occasionally pastors get to do this when they're on vacation or they have a week off, he said, when I visit another church and I walk into that building, he said, I like to look around and see if people are carrying Bibles in. He said, I know a lot of people use a Bible on their phone, they use an electronic version, but he said, I like to see if people, most of the people are carrying a copy of the Scriptures or if they're not. And his experience has been what my experience has been. When you visit a church and you walk in and you look around and most of the people do not bring a copy of the Scriptures with them, that tells you before the service even starts what you can expect in that service. And likewise, if you visit a church and most of the people, many of the people are carrying a copy of the Scriptures in with them, that tells you what you can probably expect to happen in the course of that service. Now, again, I realize that many of you like to read the Scriptures off of your phone. Everyone in the room knows that you like to do this because sometimes your phone goes off and it reads to us or it dings or whatever. So we know that. That's fine. Many of you probably just come and you grab one of the the hardback pew Bibles right there, and you open it up, that's fine too. My encouragement to you as your pastor, I've been thinking about this this last week, my encouragement to you is to bring a copy of the Scriptures with you when you come to church. If you want to keep using your phone, that's fine. If you want to use a pew Bible, that's fine. But you know, if you've been to a manual for any length of time, you know what's going to happen when we gather together in this room on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. At some point, I am going to say to you, Please take your Bible. Please pick up your Bible. Please reach for a copy of God's Word. Please open to a certain passage. We're going to read that passage together. And then me or Corey or Jake or Chris or whoever's standing up here this morning is going to talk to you about the passage that we just read. That's our aim as the people of God is to gather together and to hear from the Word of God. And I would give one plug for printed Bibles to say to you, to my knowledge, they do not send you fantasy football updates during church. They do not text you Fox News alerts during church. Your cousin in Omaha doesn't text you and see, what are you doing Sunday morning at 11 o'clock? And all of those things are not bad things, but they can be distracting things when we've taken one time out of the week to gather together as the people of God, and to hear from God's Word. So, with that said, Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read our passage beginning in verse 19 all the way to verse 25. The Word of God says this, 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning as your people, we have certainly gathered together to hear from you. We're thankful for your word. We come again to the book of Hebrews that is a challenging book in many ways, and we pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth. We pray that your spirit, uh, your same spirit that inspired these words, would apply them to our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this year, 2022, I have challenged you to read through the New Testament in a year, five chapters a week. Some of you have been here since January when I issued this challenge to you, and you've tracked along every single week. You're right on track. Several people in the early service, after I made these comments, came up to me and they said, hey, we're right on track. We've gotten behind at different points, but we've caught up. We're reading. Uh, The intent in that challenge was that during the week you would be reading the Word of God, and then when we gather together on Sundays and Wednesdays, we would pick one passage out of the reading that you've done that week to talk about, to pray about, and to hopefully ask God to apply to our lives. My sneaking suspicion is that some of you might be behind a week or two or a month or longer. Some of you weren't here in January when we started this, and you feel like you're behind the game already. My challenge to you this morning is very simple. We have about two months left in this year. Pick up right where we're at today, just right where we're at this week. We have reading guides in the foyer. We have reading guides in the hallway. Pick up right where we're at today and finish the year reading the New Testament with us from this point onward. When we get to January, you can pick a brand new Bible reading plan. I won't even tell you next year what kind of Bible reading plan to use. I'll Leave that to you, to your own decision, but don't wait till January to start reading the Word of God. Pick up right where we're at and read the New Testament with us. Now, we spent several weeks reading through and talking about the book of Hebrews. And so one more time, I want to remind you of the big overarching dual purpose of the book of Hebrews. There's a negative purpose, and the negative purpose is a book filled with warnings, warnings saying to you and me, don't stop following Jesus. But also, all the way through Hebrews, there are encouragements, positive encouragements saying, keep going, move forward, keep trusting, keep believing. And it's this back and forth throughout Hebrews, don't stop following Jesus, Keep following Jesus. Now, each week when I've mentioned that, I've given you Hebrews 2.1, 1 
That's a warning at the beginning that we're going to end with at the end of this sermon. I've also given you the encouragement in chapter 13, verse 22. Keep going. Keep going. I just want you to look inside chapter 10. I want you to look in your copy of the scriptures and see that these warnings and encouragements are both found in chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verse 26, the very next verse that we didn't read, says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. If you know the truth of the gospel and you deliberately, defiantly, intentionally, willfully go on sinning, Hebrews says there is no sacrifice for your sins. The sacrifice of Jesus has not been applied to your life because you're deliberately going on and pursuing sin. It's a warning passage. Here's an encouragement, the very last verse in chapter 10. It says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith. And preserve their souls. We have faith in Jesus. We cling to faith in Jesus. And we will persevere and preserve our souls. So that's the dual purpose of Hebrews. And you see it here in chapter 10. Now, let me say a few contextual things about our particular passage. If you read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 to 10, the first little section in Hebrews 10, you will find a group of verses describing how Jesus' death established the new covenant. Jesus is the great high priest, Hebrews is telling us. He offered a real sacrifice for sin. Not a shadow, not a copy like the things in the old covenant, but a real sacrifice. And his death established the new covenant that we're part of today as believers. If you keep reading in Hebrews chapter 10 and you pick up in verse 11 and you move to verse 18, you'll find the author saying to us that Jesus' death actually accomplished the salvation of his people. And what Hebrews is saying in this little section, and really throughout the book of Hebrews, is simply this. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection did not simply make your salvation a possibility. Jesus didn't go 99% of the way and then leave the rest up to you. What Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection actually accomplished the salvation of his people. And I can illustrate the difference and how you might think through this with an illustration from the world of sports. Last weekend, there was a football game. University of Tennessee played the University of Alabama. It's been like 400 years since Tennessee beat Alabama in football. And it came down to the very end of this game, and the score was tied 49-49. to And Tennessee had a field goal attempt to win the game. And they lined up for this field goal, and this kicker for Tennessee, I don't know what he did to the ball, but it was the wobbliest, most crooked, most ugly thing you've ever seen. And it went up, and somehow it went through the goalpost. Time was expired, and Tennessee won the game. He actually won the game with this field goal. It wasn't like the end of a football game where you're down three, and you need a field goal just to send it into overtime and extend the game, and you've got one more chance. That's not what happened. What happened when he made this kick is they actually won the football game. In baseball, we would call this a walk-off hit or a walk-off home run. 
There's nothing more to be done. The game is over. We win. You lose. It's a walk-off hit, a walk-off home run. In basketball, we would say it was a game-winning buzzer beater. It wasn't just a game-tying shot that sent it into overtime, but it was a game-winning shot. Something was actually accomplished. And Hebrews 10 is saying to us that Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, actually accomplished something on behalf of his people. He says it in verse 14. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By that single offering of himself on the cross, he accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for our salvation. Now that brings us to our passage, Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. For all the complexity of Hebrews, this is a relatively simple passage. The big idea of our passage is this. The finished work of Jesus enables the believer or the Christian to live a life of faith, a life of hope, and a life of love. The finished work of Jesus enables us, empowers us, compels us to live lives that are marked by faith, hope, and love. Now my hunch is if you've read the Bible through the New Testament up to this point, faith, hope, and love going together probably rings a bell for you. Faith, hope, and love. That's because there's four places in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul groups those three virtues together. He talks about faith, hope, and love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He connects faith, hope, and love in Colossians 1. And twice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 5, Paul connects faith, hope, and love in one single thought. The three great Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. Many people look at this grouping of faith, hope, and love in our passage, and they say, hey, Paul grouped these words together other places in the New Testament, maybe Paul is the one who wrote the book of Hebrews. I told you several weeks ago, no one knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. We have guesses, we have hunches. My hunch is that it was, in fact, Paul, but it's just a hunch, it's just a guess. And this would be one of the pieces of evidence, a small piece, but a piece that would suggest to me that maybe Paul was the author of this book. Now, as you look at this passage, finished work of Jesus empowers us to live lives of Faith, hope, and love. There's really two questions that we need to wrestle with. Two simple questions. First of all, what does this passage say about the finished work of Jesus? We need to be clear about that. Secondly, what does this passage have to say about the Christian life? And I want to begin with a comment that should not have to be made. This should be obvious to anyone who has read the New Testament. You are all smart, intelligent, spiritual people, so maybe this is obvious to you, but it's not obvious to many people living in the Bible Belt in the year 2022. The simple observation I want to make is that these two questions and the answers to those two questions are connected. They're connected. What I mean is the finished work of Jesus changes your life now. When you really get it, you really understand it, you really believe it, the truth about Jesus changes your life now. In the Bible Belt, we have been conditioned to only think in terms of eternity. 
And we have been conditioned to think that the truth about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, that will change your eternity. Now, guess what? That's true. The finished work of Jesus does change eternity for the believer. It's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between an eternity apart from God and an eternity with God. The truth about Jesus changes your eternity. That's true. That's just not what Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 is saying. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 is saying something complementary but different. It's that the finished work of Jesus changes your life today. And as we talk about how the finished work of Jesus changes your life, if you honestly examine your life in light of the Scriptures and you put yourself under the authority of the Word and you say to yourself, my life has not been changed in these ways, then maybe you have never really come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is and what He accomplished in the first place. Maybe you've been churched. Maybe you've gone to VBS and Sunday school. Maybe you can answer, answer any number of Bible questions or Bible trivia questions. But maybe you've never truly put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is and what He accomplished on your behalf. So this morning we're going to ask and answer these questions. Question number one, what does Hebrews 10 19 to 21, the first part of our passage, what does it teach us about the finished work of Jesus? The first thing it teaches us is this. The death of Jesus on the cross provides access to the presence of God. Jesus dying on the cross provides sinners like me and you with access to the very presence of God. Look at your copy of the Scriptures, Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, notice what we have. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh, verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, we have three things, confidence to enter the holy places, we have a new and a living way to enter, and it's contrasted with a curtain, we'll come back to the curtain, a new and living way, the curtain, through the curtain, that's the flesh of Jesus, and then thirdly, we have a great priest over the house of God. All of this language is talking about our access into God's very presence. And it's telling us that because Jesus shed His blood, believe it or not, you have access to the very presence of God. How many of you have been to a movie at Synergy in Odessa? Or you've been to a movie, think of a place where you have to get online. You remember the old days you just bought a ticket, you went in, it was chaos. It was like Southwest. You just sat wherever you wanted to sit. But now you got to buy a seat. You buy an actual ticket. One of my favorite things in life is going to Synergy. It's not the popcorn. Popcorn's good. One of my favorite things in life is going to Synergy, finding my seat, and then waiting for someone to make the walk of shame. You know what the walk of shame is? The walk of shame is usually a person 
I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it. They're usually older than 55, and they're sitting on the back row, the top. And they think they've bought a ticket on the back row at Synergy. And then somebody comes in with their ticket in their hand, they've printed out, or their phone, and they say, you're in my seat. And what this person accidentally did is they got online, they looked at the seating chart of the theater, and they did not pay attention to what is the front and what is the back. And they thought they were buying the back row so that they could see the whole screen. But what they really bought is the front row. And they bought a sore neck because they're about to spend the next two hours looking straight up and turning side to side, trying to take the whole movie in. I'm just being honest with you. One of my favorite things in the world is to see people have to gather all of their popcorn and all of their blankets and all of their stuff and make the walk down the steps all the way to the front. Their shoulders slump more and more and more as they get down to the front, and then they just collapse on that front row. And you think, I feel sorry for you, but it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny. I enjoy seeing that. It's a question of access. It's a question of authority. Where do you have access to sit? If you buy the wrong ticket, you don't have access to the top row. You only have access to the front row. Listen, in the Old Covenant, there was a major problem of access. There was a question of access. And the question was, who can come into God's presence in the most holy place? First in the tabernacle, then in the temple. Who can come? And the very simple biblical answer is that there is only one person who can come. Only one, and it's the high priest. Any old person off the street couldn't come. Only the high priest could come. And the high priest could only come one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And before the high priest could just march right into the holy place, the high priest had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins committed in the previous year. He had to confess his sins and lay his hand on an animal and kill that animal and sprinkle the blood in the holy place. And then, only then, could he go out and take the two animals and cast lots for them. And one was driven away as this picture of the people and their sin being removed. This other one was a picture of sin being punished. And then and only then could he represent the people in the most holy place. One man, one day a year, with very specific restrictions. That's who had access to the most holy place, to the very presence of God. What Hebrews is telling you is that has changed. It's changed because all of those Old Testament sacrifices were copies and shadows. And Jesus has offered something real. Here's the next truth that you need to see about the finished work of Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross was the one true sacrifice for sin. All of the old covenant sacrifices were copies and shadows of the one true sacrifice offered by Jesus. This is how real Jesus' sacrifice was. The Bible says in Matthew 27 that in the moment Jesus died and breathed his last, the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem was torn in half from top to bottom. Almighty God reached down in that miraculous moment and ripped the curtain in half. The very 
curtain that only the high priest could go beyond. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement. It was completely ripped in half. Symbolizing the truth that through Jesus we have access to the very presence of God. The very presence of God. Paul describes it in Colossians 1 like this. He says, Jesus has made peace between us and God. He's made peace by the blood of His cross. And that's what Hebrews is talking about. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. There's a new living way that we enter. It's not like the old dead curtain that's been ripped in half, but it's a new living way. We enter through Jesus into the very presence of God. Jesus is our great high priest. Now, all of that truth can change your eternity. When you confess that you're a sinner and you believe the good news that Jesus offered a sacrifice to pay for your sins, and you put your faith in who Jesus is and what He did on the cross, your eternity will be changed. You will be moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son, never to be taken back to the kingdom of darkness. And your present reality will change. And in the last part of our passage, Hebrews 10, 22 to 25, the author of Hebrews describes how your life will change when you've truly put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what does Hebrews 10, 22 to 25 teach us about the Christian life? There's three places in these verses where the author uses the phrase, let us, let us, let us, let us. Let's look at each in turn. First of all, believers are encouraged to draw near to God through faith in Jesus. That's verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's where we pick up the virtue of faith. Faith, hope, love. There's faith. We draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Drawing near to God. You know, if you're going to read the New Testament with us, you're about to read James. James 4 is one of the most beautiful promises in the Bible. James 4 says that if you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Most people don't believe that. Most people think if I draw near to God, He's going to be repulsed by me. He's going to hold me at arm's distance. He's going to want to hose me off on the front porch before he lets me inside. He's going to want me to clean myself up and do something worthy of his presence. That's not what James says. James says, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you in his grace and his mercy. The question is, how do I do that? How do I draw near to God? And I think the book of Hebrews is answering that question. The way that you draw near to God is faith. It's faith. That's what he's talking about in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's what Hebrews is about to spend a whole chapter talking about. If you look at Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. You and I draw near to God by faith. That's a high and a holy privilege to draw near to God through faith. When you read verse 22 and it talks about the 
hearts being sprinkled and the evil conscience and the bodies washed, all of that is a direct fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. We won't turn there this morning. Some of you may want to jot it down and reference it later. It's a promise of the new covenant. All of those things in verse 22 are promised in Ezekiel 36. And because this prophecy has come to fulfillment in Jesus, we can draw near to God through faith. You know, Americans misunderstand a lot of things when it comes to the Bible and religion. One of the things Americans struggle with is the concept of sin. Americans don't have much of a concept of sin in the year 2022. We talk about disorders, we talk about hang-ups, we talk about shortcomings, we talk about mistakes, maybe. We talk about, I need therapy for this, I need treatment for that, but we really don't like to, as a people, own up to our sin. One of the consequences of that is we think that we are entitled to draw near to God. We think it's our right to be in His presence whenever we want to be in His presence. We have no concept of what the Bible says in the book of Romans when it says the only thing that you are entitled to as a sinner is death. The wrath and the judgment of God, that's what you're entitled to. We just tend to think as a people, I'm not talking about you individually, I'm just talking about Americans as a people, we tend to think that we're entitled to God's presence. You know as well as I do that when you see entitlement in someone's life, it's, a, it's an off-putting thing. If it's economic entitlement, we tend not to like that. If it's political entitlement, if it's workplace entitlement, if it's academic entitlement, the idea that everyone should get an A just for showing up and being alive. Like entitlement, we push back. We say, that's not right. But spiritually, we are an entitled people. We think that we're entitled to, to be in God's presence when all we're entitled to is death. And it's a high and a holy privilege to draw near to God through faith in Jesus. I know that your lives are busy. My life is busy. I have four kids. They move in seven directions at all times. That's four kids times seven directions. That's a lot of going. My wife works, and there's a lot of y'all, and I work with Corey and Jake and Jake and Jennifer. There's a lot of them. Like, life's busy. Your life's busy. I understand life is busy. I pray, as you think about Hebrews 10, that you are intentional about finding time in your life to draw near to God through faith. You understand that when you talk to God, when you pray, that is an act of faith. You can't see God. For all you know, your prayers are bouncing right off the ceiling and hitting you. But when you pray, you're talking to God as an act of faith saying, I don't see Him, but I believe that He's real and I believe that He hears me. When you open the Scriptures and you read the Bible, you understand that's an act of faith. This is a book written thousands upon thousands of years ago. And you open it up believing that when I open this book and read it, God is going to speak to me. Not in some audible sense. Not like I'm going to be really still and really quiet and wait for a voice from heaven. 
but I'm just going to open it and read it and believe as an act of faith that this is God's Word. That's drawing near to God by faith. When you take your Sunday morning and you come sit in this room, it's an act of faith. We're going to gather together. We're going to sing together. Someone's going to pray. We're going to read from an old book. They're going to talk about the book. And what you believe, if you're a Christian, is that when we gather together in this room, God meets us here in a real way. Not in a visible way, not in a tangible way, but you believe that when the people of God gather together for the purpose of worship, that God meets with them. That's drawing near to God through faith. I know that life is busy. I just don't want you to take for granted the high and the holy privilege that you have as a Christian of drawing near to God through faith. What does Hebrews 10 teach us about the Christian life? Answer number two. Believers are encouraged to hold fast our confession of hope in Jesus. We cling to this hope. We grip this hope and we refuse to let it go. The word hope here in verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That word hope is the Greek word elpis. Elpis. We use hope for all sorts of weak, wishy-washy, maybe things. That's not what the word means in the Bible. You've got to forget the way we use the word hope in English, and you've got to understand what it means in biblical terminology. What it means in the Bible is a certain strong conviction that something will happen. It's not a maybe. It's certainty about something in the future. It's not that distinct from the idea of faith. Except there's an added conviction to it. There's a certainty to it. There's an absoluteness to it. That we will hold fast to hope. We hold fast to hope and we do it without wavering. You know, when a person is baptized, it's an expression of hope. Every person who is baptized at our church confesses in front of all of you that they are a sinner. That they have fallen short of God's glory. And that they need someone else to save them. And they confess the confidence they have that the Lord Jesus Christ has offered a sacrifice. That the Father has accepted. And they have put their faith and their hope in the Lord Jesus. I want you to understand that Christian baptism as we've celebrated it this morning is a picture of that. And I want you to understand that that hope, holding fast to that hope, is not a one-time thing. It's an active, ongoing thing. It happens at your baptism, and it happens throughout the Christian life over and over and over again. You hold fast to this hope. And you hold fast without wavering, Hebrews 10 says. Just to revisit what we've seen in the book of Hebrews... We hold fast to our hope without wavering because we believe that God the Father sent God the Son to offer a sacrifice on our behalf. And we are confident, what does Hebrews 10, 23 say? We are confident that He who promised is faithful. The Father will accept the finished work of the Son. The Father will accept the Son's sacrifice on your behalf. So you have a firm, settled confidence 
that you hold fast to, and you hold fast to it without wavering. We draw near to God. We hold fast our confession of hope. Number three, believers are encouraged to continue gathering together until Jesus returns. Look at verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There's your third virtue, love and good works. We've seen faith, we've seen hope, we've seen love. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How do we as Christians stir one another up to love and good works? The answer is in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't neglect meeting together. Don't neglect meeting together. Positively, meet together. Gather together. I told you about the Greek word for hope. The Greek word here for gather is the Greek word episunagoge. Episunagoge. Sounds like the word synagogue, right? A synagogue is a place where Jewish people would meet together. They would gather together. They would be together in that place, a synagogue. This is a verb form of that word, that idea, meet together, gather together. You will find it in the Bible one other place, this exact form of this word. Only in one other place in 1 Thessalonians 2.1, which says that when the Lord Jesus returns, His people will be gathered to Him. He will gather us to Himself, and we will be with Him. And the only other place you find this exact verb, I think this is a beautiful thing, is in Hebrews 10, talking about the necessity, the importance of Christian people gathering together. And both of these verses mention the return of Jesus, don't they? Verse 25, don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The day when Jesus returns and he gathers us to himself. What do we do until that day? We gather to each other. We meet together as a church and we worship together and we pray together and we study together and We encourage one another. We encourage one another. I hope that when you come to a service at Emmanuel Baptist Church, the primary thing that you are there to do is to worship. It's to acknowledge the greatness and the glory of God. It's to confess the truth about Him. It's to draw near to Him through faith. It's to hold fast to your hope in the gospel. I hope that's your primary purpose. A close second, when you show up to this place, I pray and I hope that you are here to encourage other Christians. You coming to church is not just about you. In fact, you're third in the list of who it's about. It's primarily about God and worshiping God. And secondly, it's not about you, but it's about encouraging other people. Encouraging them with your presence by simply being here. Showing up. Encouraging people by serving. Finding a place to be involved in ministry here at Emmanuel. Encouraging people by speaking to them. 
I realize that on this side of COVID, we have never gone back to the little weird thing in the middle of the service where I say, now everybody stand up and shake somebody's hand. And you awkwardly try to pretend like you don't see all the people around you and you think, how long is this going to last? Can I hold out another 30 seconds? No, we're still going. I guess I got to shake one. We don't do that. We're not going to start doing that again. But you should speak to people. Not just because I told you to, but because the Bible says you should keep meeting together, gathering together, and you should encourage one another. Encourage one another. You're here to worship God, number one, and you're here to encourage other believers, number two. Hebrews 10.25 says, as the day of Christ's return draws near, you do this more and more and more. Now I want to circle back, since this is our last stop in Hebrews. I want to draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. It's the first warning in Hebrews. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Do you know what needs to happen for you to drift away from gospel things? Nothing. That's your default. That's my default, is to drift away from the things of God. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to defiantly shake your fist at the heavens. You don't have to say curse words about Jesus. You don't have to do anything crazy. You just have to do nothing, and you'll drift. Like a boat that's not tied up to the dock. When you come back the next day, it'll drift. It'll drift away. Like a balloon that you take outside in West Texas on a windy day and you turn loose of it, it'll blow away. That's just naturally what it will do. If you do nothing, you will drift. Hebrews is telling you in chapter 2, verse 1, one of the things you need to do is pay attention. Pay attention to what you've heard. One of the things we've heard from the book of Hebrews is this morning. And it's that in light of the truth about Jesus, we have been empowered to live lives of faith, hope, and love. And here's what that means. Number one, it means that you intentionally draw near to God through faith. On a Sunday morning in this room and every day, you're intentional about drawing near. Let us draw near. It means, secondly, that you're intentional about holding fast to the hope that you have in Jesus. That's the idea of Hebrews 2.1. Don't forget, pay attention to what you've heard. Hold fast to the hope that you have in Jesus. And thirdly, be intentional. Let us not forsake meeting together. Let us stir one another up to love and to good works. How? Well, don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but keep doing it more and more as you see the day drawing near. All of those things require intentionality on your part. Now, you need to understand that if you take those three let us verses, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us gather together, if you divorce them from the first part of the passage we read, then you end up with a three-point list of things that you need to do in order for God to love you. But that's not what we've talked about this morning. We started off talking about the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of His people. 
He has offered a real sacrifice, accepted in the heavenly places on your behalf, so that you can draw near through faith, so that you can hold fast to your hope, and so that we might continue meeting together. Let's pray.